the example of Jesus. We're going to ask you to bear with me a little bit today. I'm having a hard time keeping my breath, so I may be a little slower than normal. If we have confessed that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, this is not because of anything in us. Because flesh and blood doesn't reveal that. It is because God has given us a new heart. He has called us out of our tombs because we were dead in sin, alienated from God by wicked works, but we have been made alive in Jesus Christ. So if Jesus says to us, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me, that is not a call we can answer until the Holy Spirit brings us out of our tombs with the voice of Christ, until he writes God's law upon our hearts, and until Jesus says to us, Behold, I make all things new. I make you new. It is very important that when we talk about the gospel duties of love, that we do not then fall into the grave error of thinking, I can do this. Because in every way we are dead, and in every way everything good comes from the power of God. God is the only one who can deliver men from sin and death and blindness. You can't deliver yourself. I can't deliver myself. We are dead. God has to come and make us alive. He has to teach us that Jesus is our righteousness, our peace, our joy, our life. This work that God does, we must never naturalize it. Don't waste your time, for example, getting degrees in psychology of religion, because the psychology of religion is helpful for nothing. But what is helpful is the biblical teaching that you must be born again, that God opens dead men's eyes to receive the love of the truth, that they might be saved. This work that God does in us, though, is progressive. It unfolds over time. So while on the one hand we say, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain, on the other hand we say with Paul, as he said in chapter 7, O wretched man that I am. I want to follow after Christ. I want to do God's will. I want to answer the disciples' call. I want to deny myself and take up the cross and follow him. But I see and feel another law in my members, the law of sin. I see pride lurking in my heart. I see the very thing that Paul talks about here in Romans 15.1, that I do live sometimes to please myself, maybe actually often. I struggle with this, and of course, we can do so even under the guise of religious zeal. For example, I'm supposed to defend truth, and I believe I am doing it, but while I am defending it, I forget that the duties of love and meekness are in many respects more or at least as fundamental as defending the truth of God. Maybe 
in defending that truth, I want people to see that I'm right. Or when a weaker brother may, as in the Roman congregation, be struggling with some issue of conscience or a lesser issue of ritual or ceremony, and instead of, I want to help that brother, I argue with him. We looked at all of that in chapter 14. Or maybe I will even belittle him without even knowing it because he's not as far along as I think he should be. Or he's not as far along as I think I happen to be. You know, it may seem in all this discussion of the weak uh, and the strong that it would be better if the weak were in one camp and all the strong were in another camp. So there wouldn't be so much bickering. But you know, that's just pride talking. Because the Lord Jesus distributes his gifts and graces throughout the body as he pleases. If he gives more grace to one brother, then that brother is to share that grace, that understanding, that knowledge, that experience with the weaker brother. The weak are not weak at every point. They have loveliness and beauty and grace to share with the body as well because every true disciple who has been born again by the Spirit of God has Christ in them, the hope of glory. So you may be strong in one area, but I'll guarantee you are weak in another. And you may be weak in one area, but I'll guarantee you are strong in another because it is Christ in us that is the hope of glory. So each member is supposed to do his own part, as Paul says in Ephesians 4. And God gives grace to the stronger to encourage the weaker, and he gives other graces to the weaker to encourage the stronger. So the worst thing that we can do is to demand that everyone think like us in all these secondary details of ritual or practice. But instead, we should be humbled before the Lord and realize how dependent we really are upon one another. Remember, within this body, each one of us has some aspect of Christ, some grace, some gift, some mighty work that he has done for you, But we've got to put the whole together so that we can each see his glory and his majesty and be encouraged. So that the strong can keep remembering, wait a minute, I'm not strong because of me, I'm strong because of him. And so the weak can keep remembering, wait a minute, Jesus has compassion even on the weakest lamb. So let me not run away from the body just because I'm weak. And then when I'm stronger, I'll find no. Each member must do his part so that we can grow together as the Lord's dwelling place. Here, Paul speaks of himself in verse 1 as part of the strong. Now, that doesn't mean, of course, that he's been working out. It means because he understands God's truth clearly. He understands that the practice of godliness did not mean you can eat this, you can't, you can't eat this, you can't drink this, you need to observe this. 
So that put him in the category of the strong. The specific strength here is the understanding that the older covenant ceremonial observances and rituals are no longer binding with the first coming of Christ. Of course, not drinking wine, which we looked at in chapter 14, was not part of the old covenant economy. So he is also bringing in perhaps some of the more esoteric Gentile religions where abstaining from certain foods was looked at as a mark of piety. But as Paul says in Colossians 1.20, those are the rudiments of the world. Those are the doctrines and commandments of men. And Jesus has freed us from those. So Paul says, we that are strong then ought to bear with the infirmities of the weak. What are the strong to do? Well, everyone ought to be strong. Everyone ought to see this as clearly as I do, that Jesus has done away with the necessity of these secondary observances of days and rituals. So they were tempted to maybe do what? Rush ahead. Come on, everybody, follow me, follow us, and ignore the weaker conscience of their brother and somehow set themselves up as the supreme court of truth and godliness. But Paul does something else. He lays an obligation. The ought there is very important. It is a duty that the strong have a duty, an obligation to support the weak. Why? Because of grace. By the way, before I move into that, the word bear the infirmities of the weak does not mean that the scruples of the weak, you can't drink this, you can't eat that, you must do this, that we just ignore they are there uh, or just kind of let the conscience of each man tyrannize the whole congregation. No, the word bear here means support, so that the strong are to support hold up, nurture, and love, and be at peace with the weak, and not argue with them, and fight with them, and try to encourage them to sin against their conscience. But how is this possible? We know in our own lives there is so much pride. We come to the conclusion about some doctrine or practice, and we want everyone else to see it, and if they don't see it on secondary issues, we struggle with it. But behind all of this is the meekness and the gentleness of Christ. Listen to me. Every one of us says with Paul in 1 Corinthians 4, 7. In fact, turn over there with me, if you will, because I want you to see this verse. It is such a crucial verse. Augustine used to say that this verse, more than any other, brought him over to a more Christian position on grace and Christ. 1 Corinthians 4, 7. For who maketh thee to differ from one another? And what do you have that you did not receive? Now, if you did not receive it, why dost thy glory as if thou did not receive it? You might say, Gary, 
You said this is a crucial verse. Oh, yes. What do I have that I have not received? I'll tell you what I do have. I have depravity. I have corruption. Lies, lust, pride, anger, filthiness of every description. That's what I have. So if there is any good, God has given it to us. It came from him. The new birth, we must be born again. The new birth comes from him. We can't even see the kingdom of God until God causes us to be born from on high. So the apostle says in 1 Corinthians 4, Therefore, we must never boast as if, Well, God has shown this to me. So you should really listen to me. No, there is a meekness that comes to all of Christ's disciples when we realize that everything we have has come from God. So there has been a lot of sickness here. In fact, some are still sick today. And I've heard from other churches the same thing. There's also a lot of concern about things going on in the world. But there is also within the body of Christ a fundamental waterfall of gratitude and joy. If we keep in constant mind everything that I have as a Christian, forgiveness, peace with God, joy, the Bible, the fellowship of the saints, that God hasn't let me go the times that I have sinned, but he has brought someone to comfort me and draw me back in, even if I didn't like it at the time. All of these things, God has done this for me. And he's still doing mighty works. It's just that we in our stupidity defined mighty works today by things we see on the internet or in Hollywood or on computer-generated graphics, rather than realizing that the most miraculous things going on in the world today are not in the scientific laboratories or in a legislative body. They are done in the new life that God is giving sinners and the enjoyment of that new life as His grace grows in us so that we say, Notice sin. Notice sin. I love sin. There are many things in our lives that if we just weren't afraid of getting caught or weren't afraid of other consequences, we would run back to them. But then God comes to us if we are true believers and he changes all that. So that the very things we used to love or indulge in without thinking, now we say, I hate them. I loathe them. I even hate myself that I even want to do them, that I even have any itching left for them. And you know what? That is a miracle. That is more miraculous than splitting the atom for God to do this to sinners. So Paul says to them, you ought to bear the weak because everything you have is a gift of God's grace to you. So maybe also instead of thinking so much about what I don't have or the problems in my life 
or what not. Instead, think, what has God done for me? There is a certain thing that the old hymn writers caught that we don't seem to catch today. And that is remembering God's mercies, counting your blessings, naming them one by one. I thought, O Lord, on your works of old and comforted myself. Give thanks to the Lord in every situation because the more thankful you are and the more you recognize that everything you have is a gift of God, the humbler and then the meeker you are towards your brothers. So if a brother is struggling with his family or he's struggling with his thought life, or he's trying to understand what I, what I may think is just a basic Christian doctrine, and he's really stumbling over it, or maybe a practice that I've never really had a problem with, instead of condemning him, support him, bear him up, teach him, give encouragement to him, remind him that, that weaker brother, I'm just as lost as you are. But Jesus Christ is a great Savior. And I've learned over time that this is how he works in the way he changes men. And he will do the same for you. So I'll pray for you. And I'll help you where I can. You see, this is the kind of spirit Paul is encouraging within the body. It's so funny. We perhaps don't feel this because we don't have this dynamic. But the whole Jew-Gentile question was a fireball. Read Acts 15. Read the letter to the Galatians. When you had the worst extreme, the Judaizers saying, you have to follow the old economy in order to be justified. This almost split the church. But here's Paul in this wonderful letter of majestic themes, Romans, concluding with love is stronger, grace is stronger than pride. For when sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. He adds there at the end of verse 1, and not to please ourselves. Of course, this is a general comment. If any man will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. If you are a Christian, then when you renew your vows to him, when you tithe and take the Lord's Supper, you are saying, Lord, I renounce my right to please myself. Now I am pleased in pleasing you. So there is another sub-element to that. But in terms of living for me, living like I want, doing what I want to do, life being about me, having everything go according to my schedule, my order of life, I've renounced all of that. Because my main goal is what we already saw in Romans fourteen eighteen, For he that in these things serveth Christ. You see, that's the goal of every disciple. To serve Christ in my home, in my family, in the work I do, in my thought life. I want to please Jesus. What pleases me is what pleases him. But of course, it is also a struggle because none of us have arrived at this perfectly in this life. It kind of gets all wrapped up in itself. We struggle with pleasing ourselves. 
in context, this would be arguing with a weaker brother instead of encouraging him. But I, I, I like to argue a little bit. Well, there are some believers who like to fuss a little bit, who like to argue a little bit. It's not that they're going, going to hell and not going to heaven when they die. It's just that they tend to be wired that way. And sometimes, you know, that can actually be good. But it needs to be tamed by pleasing Christ first, not pleasing ourselves. Philippians 2.3, a verse we should probably all memorize. Philippians 2.3, let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than themselves. Now, it's not that we're not important. It's not that Jay is not important. It's not that Alex is not important. It's not that Catalina is not important. It's not that. It's look at what Jesus has done for me. Look at his death on the cross, his resurrection, that he ever lives to make intercession for us at the right hand of God. And it's not about me. It's about God's glory and what he is doing. So instead of living, living to please me, I want to live to please my brothers, those for whom Christ died. Do they have a different view about a secondary issue? Okay. Do they happen to be weaker in this area? Oh, okay. But has not Jesus Christ become the man of sorrows and borne all my weakness and curse on the cross? Has not God condescended to save me? Didn't Jesus humble himself and become obedient unto death, even the death of the cross? You see, the more we are struck by God's condescension, his mercy, his pity, the more we are struck by Christ's humiliation, the more that that changes us. And I encourage you to think about this. Meditate on these basic gospel truths that you all know. Because, more that, because then the more pleasing of self and living of self, even under religious pretense, becomes so distasteful. I want to have as little to do with me as possible. That is what the disciple wants to come to. Now granted, I pray, and I've got to take a bath and brush my teeth, etc., so in this context, we are to love ourselves. You see that? The Bible nowhere says, don't love yourself. It just says, with the intensity with which we do love ourselves, that needs to be directed to our brothers and sisters, so that pleasing me becomes secondary to, be, to pleasing one another. So then... This is a duty to support the weak in their infirmities, in their struggles with these secondary issues, and not to please ourselves. But listen very carefully. This is not a man-pleasing mentality. There is a difference between pleasing our neighbor and being a man-pleaser. And verse 2 shows us the difference. Pleasing man would be... Every man's 
whim must be catered to. Every time my child sneezes or whimpers, I need to cater to this. No, that would be man-pleasing. And that is a very bad principle for our parenting. Other times, no, we should never say anything that would make anyone feel uncomfortable. So notice he adds two things in verse 2. Let every one of us please his neighbor for his good. Now, of course, God is the one who defines what is good. So we're not, going, we're not doing good to our neighbor if we don't confront him gently and meekly when there is a sin that he has committed or he has departed from God's word in some way or another. We are doing evil, not good, when we don't resist the evils of our day in the way they often infect the church. If the church goes into sodomy, gives in to sodomy, fornication, immodesty in the name of, well, don't, I don't, we don't want anyone to be unhappy, right? We may be pleasing men, but we are not pleasing God. So the Holy Spirit also adds to edification, meaning to build up. The goal of this pleasing, of this supporting, is to build others up in God's truth, in holiness, and encouraging them to walk to please God in all things. Then he brings forward an example in verse 3. Turn with me, though, first. To Matthew 10, 25. <clears throat> and then we'll look at John, 1 John 2, 6. First Matthew 10, 24 and 25. The disciple is not above his master, nor the servant above his Lord. It is enough for the disciple that he be as his master and the servant as his Lord. 1 John 2, six, He that saith he abideth in him ought himself also to walk even as he walked. So in bringing forward, even as Christ pleased not himself from verse 3 of Romans 15, the phrase itself is astounding. The Holy One, whose every motive was the very definition of purity, he didn't live to please himself. Rich in majesty beyond comparison. Lovely beyond our ability to conceive. He humbled himself and became obedient unto the death of the cross. He spared himself no pain, no trouble, no sorrow in order to accomplish his twofold goal in life. Which is... I always do these things that please my Father. And for this reason, I have come to this hour to lay down my life for the sheep. Those two considerations. I always do those things that please my Father. John eight twenty nine, And I come to lay down my life for the sheep. John ten fifteen. He emptied himself. He did not please himself. The incarnate word had nowhere to lay his head. Do you understand this? This is why the disciples live in the gospel. 
Because these things that we read of our Lord, these must resonate with us. Because that is the example of how we are to live. To say that he does not please himself means that those two considerations controlled his inner life and his mission in the world to please his father and to save his sheep. So he didn't spare himself anything that was necessary to accomplish those two ends. When faced with the cup of our judgment, oh, he struggled. He could not have done otherwise. He knew what that cup entailed. The cup of judgment becoming literally the cup of burnt offering for our sins, tasting the sorrows of hell and the pain of our judicial death. Oh, yes, he struggled. But he overcame all self-consideration of what it, what it would mean for him to suffer and for the sword of justice to strike him down. He overcame all that self-consideration and he yielded to his father's will. Hungry, he had and still has a real body, just like you and I, glorified, but a real human body. Hungry, he learned to live by every word that came from the mouth of God, despised and rejected. He forgave his enemies and loved them. Even when his friends betrayed and denied him, he loved them to the end and offered himself as the propitiation for our sins. So, if we would learn how not to please ourselves, Paul brings forward the example of Jesus Christ, his complete self-disinterestedness at one level in his pleasing the Father and in his laying down his life for the sheep. So if we're going to learn how to do this in our families and in our congregation or in those thousands of decisions that make up the tapestry of our lives every day, we must look to Jesus. Lord Jesus, make me less self-conscious, less self-absorbed, more mindful of others, more preferring others mindfully. But what about me? Well, what about Jesus? You see, that is what we keep coming back to with his disciples. But what about me? What about my needs? What about Jesus? But what about the fact that I'm tired? Well, what about Jesus? What about the fact that my husband doesn't give me the emotional support I need? What about Jesus? What about the fact my wife does not love me and she doesn't? What about Jesus? What about the fact my parents are mean-spirited? What about Jesus? I mean, we keep coming back to this. This is the issue. Is it going to be me or is it going to be Jesus? Are we going to follow him into Gethsemane and say, on whatever the issue is, Father, my will be done? No, Father, your will be done, because it's not about me. This is not just a little hey. And while you're at it, when you're thinking about pleasing your neighbor and supporting him, 
Give a little thought to Jesus. This one little verse. It's like the black hole of the entire chapter. It just absorbs everything else. Christ, the anointed one, the holy one of God, Jacob's angel, that one did not please himself. No, he didn't. He laid down his life for us. Be careful, though, when you pray. Lord, make me more like you. Because he will touch you right on your idol, just as he touches on mine and says, you're going to have to give this up, disciple. I'm going to really sift you here. Maybe it's money. Maybe it's appearance. Maybe it's health. Maybe it's family. Maybe it's an addiction. Maybe it's work. Because if he is going to make us self-disinterested at one level like him, he is going to have to teach us really self-denial. He's going to have to teach us how to be content in serving others even while our own hearts may be breaking. That is just one little thing, really a huge thing, that makes the cross so incredible. I mean, he bore the curse for all of God's people for all time upon his body on the tree. We're not permitted at one level to either ever enter his inner thought life at that moment of agony. I mean, we hear the cry. We hear the, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But what it really meant for him, who was always the father's delight, Rejoicing always before him, eternally one with the Father, enjoying fellowship with his Father. I and my Father are one. We enjoyed glory together in fellowship when there was none of you. The triune God was perfectly content, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, to contemplate, rejoice in his own excellence throughout all eternity, without any man, without any creature. And yet God in his wisdom and sovereignty and goodness created us. But we ran away from him. We fell. And he could have judged us. But he made promises to his people. He sent his son, and that very son took into his own holy soul all the, all the sorrows of hell for us. Of course, none of us have even been to hell, yet we say, war is hell. No, it's not. War is heaven in comparison to hell, my friends. We say cancer is hell. No, it's not. I guarantee you there are many, many millions of people in hell right now who had horrible, debilitating, painful cancer on earth that would beg to come back and suffer some more on earth than suffer eternally in hell fire. Cancer is not hell. Hell is where there is no barrier any longer between the holiness and the justice of God, where there is no mercy, there is no intervention, there is no hope of any recovery. 
It is just the sinful, rebellious, still sinning soul swearing at God, feeling his horrors and his judgments. And that is what Jesus took on the cross for us. So bring this forward. That he did not please himself is the most powerful motivation for us to change the way, for example, we respond to our wives, isn't it? Yeah, but this is the way. It doesn't matter. We must ask everyone who thinks they deserve better, what about Christ, who did not live to please himself and say, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Therefore, what does that mean? Not my will, Father, but yours be done. It's not about me. He must increase, but I must decrease. So I want you to think about this example and be humbled by it. He brings forward in the second half of the verse, Psalm 69, verse 9, which says... Zeal for my father's house has eaten me up, and the reproaches of them that reproach thee fell on me. I think that is presented to us there in verse 3 to show how far Jesus went in not pleasing himself. He went so far that all the blasphemies and the curses that men heaped upon God, he took them as if they were wholly directed to him. He was consumed with his father's business. Remember when he was 12 years old and he said he had a zeal for his father's house that was eating him up? How about us? Do you have a zeal for the Lord's house that is just eating you up? Remember, the servant is not greater than his master. And part of that zeal for his father is he took all of the reproaches. Every time someone said in his presence, oh my God, it was like a dagger. Those words should never be heard from the mouth of any of us. If we are going to be like Jesus, then we are in for a big struggle in this particular culture. Because no one ever says here, Allah, damn it. But boy. They take the name of God and the name of Jesus and find every way possible to drag it through the dirt. And if we're going to be like Jesus at some level, the dagger of that reproach will strike at your heart's core. But I have to confess, as I'm sure many of you do as well, it doesn't strike at my heart as it should. I've got a lot farther to go to be like Jesus, but that is the way Jesus was. Now, how does that prove that the strong should support the weak? Well, think of it like this. The most important reality of all is the glory of God. The glory of God is more important than our health. It's more important than we have a big Sunday dinner to go home to today It's more important than if I feel good. The glory of God is the most important thing in this universe. And if in that, Jesus did not please himself, do you mean he took all the reproaches of the Father? 
So when it comes to pork or no pork, wine or no wine, days or no days, you're going to please yourself. When we see what he did with the biggest issue of all, he didn't please himself. Certainly on the lesser things, they are of comparatively no significance at all in comparison to the glory of God. So we should certainly love one another and forgive and overlook one another for good and cover a multitude of sins with love. You know, every time I read that, I realize I am so sinful. I am so selfish, but his name is Jesus, and he will save his people from their sins. So Jesus loved us by not seeking his own will, but the will of his Father who sent him. And by his will, we are sanctified by the offering up of the body of Christ once for all. So the way we enjoy that salvation, not that we earn it, there's no earning we don't earn anything except maybe hell. So if you get on the I will earn this path, the merit path, you know then you're going to hell. So there's no question of earning. But the way that we enjoy the salvation that Jesus has merited for us is by living as he did to please one another. How would your marriage be, O oh husband, if you seriously dedicated yourself to living for the good and the building up of your wife? How much different young person would your parent-child relationship be if you seriously took how Jesus did not live to please himself and then you look in the mirror and say, you know what, I am a selfish rascal. Because I have been living for me, for my feelings, my thoughts, my body, my friends, my this, my that. Instead of saying, I'm going to live to please God and my parents. What? That's not in the movies. That's not on the TV sitcoms. That's not what the experts say. I'm supposed to be living for myself at this point in my life says those who are going to hell. For us, we have a different model, and that is Christ. And he didn't live to please himself. So as a young person, I'm going to live to please my parents and do them good and build them up because they need to be built up too. You see, parents are not paragons of strength. They're weak as we all are in our own bodies. I mean, whose good are you going to live for? Who did you pray for this week, my friends? Who did you say, you know what? I'm going to call that brother this week, that sister. I need to call that sister this week who is, is, who is now struggling with her children and could really use some encouragement. Maybe she's losing hope and heart. Yeah, but I got all these issues myself. I've had to learn how to bear up under the task of raising several children, and no one called me. Oh, what about Jesus? What about Jesus? 
God may have given you grace to deal with children or a job or traffic better than other people in the body do. But that doesn't mean that he has given you that grace so that you can just sit there real smugly and beat your chest and say, well, if I did it, they should be able to do it too. You know what? I praise God that Jesus did not say that. Well, I obeyed God. That should be able, they should be able to do it too. No, he said, they can't. So I'm going to do it for them. And I'm going to take their curse upon myself because there was nothing they could do to remove that curse. So that's how we should be toward one another in this body. Do you know what the secret to a loving congregation is? Because that is really what Paul is driving out in chapters 14 and 15. Patience with one another. Not expecting that everyone should have the same opinion on secondary issues. That is really what he's driving at. That we should love and we should be like Jesus. So what's the secret of love? So a church is not to be a mutual admiration society. That's not the kind of body life that generates love. That's the kind of body life where every man basically becomes a god unto himself. Sometimes we, in loving one another and doing one another good, we've got to exchange uh, in hard confrontation. But, and here's the secret, if I'm growing in love for Jesus, it is because he loves me. You see, Jesus is the secret. He is the key to love. So as a disciple, each one of us is walking in fellowship with Jesus Christ, loving him, loving his word, because Jesus Christ is really real. So as I'm walking in fellowship with him, I'm going to grow in love for him and for one another, but not in my power. It is Christ in me, the hope of glory. It is his abiding presence by the Holy Spirit. His love in me, loving you. His love in you, loving me. We are not a religion of, we'll follow these rules and you will get these results. We are a people who serve a risen, reigning, living, loving Savior. And if we know him, he will change us. He will produce love in us. He will produce patience. He will produce understanding. He will enable the hard confrontations when they are necessary, about necessary things. But he will enable it because there is meekness and because the goal is not. I have not. I have got to get this person to see my opinion. No, it is because I want my brother, my friend, my eternal brother or sister to share this fullness of Christ with me, to share the joy of knowing him and of relating to his truth. Now, some people say you can't have an emphasis on truth and an emphasis on love. Really? You must. Because all truth leads to Christ, and Christ leads to love. 
He is love. He is the love of the Father. So if you are holding on to the truth, we ought to use it and speak it in love and gentleness. Sometimes, obviously, with heretics, which no one in here obviously is. Yes, we've got to be more forceful. But with us, we are all brothers and sisters. So I'll leave you with a couple of questions today. So who are you living to please? Or who are you waiting to please you? If they would just do this, then I would change. Oh, please remember Jesus. Marriages have been destroyed because of that spirit. Parent-child relationships have been destroyed because of waiting for other people to do what would, what would please me before I would do what I'm supposed to do to please them. Congregations have divided over that very spirit. I'm waiting for them to do what they're supposed to do before I do what I know I'm supposed to do. Praise God. That we have a Savior who do not relate to us in that way, or we would all be doing whatever today, straight on our way to eternal hell. So, who are you living to please? Who are you waiting to please you before you'll do what you're supposed to do? I would like everyone in here, this is not a question, but more of a request. Pick out someone in this body that you do not normally seek and do good to them and contact them this week and encourage them. Ask them how you can pray for them because each one of us at a very fundamental level is weak and needy. So we need one another. So let me turn this into a question. Who are you going to do good to? Well, I focus on my family. That's good. Our family is a primary place where we are to seek to do good. But that family is not the church. So we need to save at least 15 minutes this week to call a sister, sister so-and-so, brother so-and-so, and ask, how can I pray for you? How can I show my love for you this week? Can you imagine? How that would build up this body? Third question. When was the last time you thought of Jesus not pleasing himself? Being self-disinterested. I have no idea for myself. Sometimes I just kind of run free, free thought a little bit, thinking, what would heaven be like? And trying to just keep it in balance with scripture. And one of the things that just utterly awes me is a parable that Christ told in Matthew 25, where he speaks of a rich landowner who went to a far country, the rich landowner being Jesus. And he comes back and he judges his servants. This is the parable, if you remember, of the kingdom. And then Jesus says at the end of that parable that the owner will ungird himself and serve his servants at the table. You see, at one level, even though Jesus is glorified and exalted, 
I think when we get to heaven, we're going to see him still looking as the lamb that had been slain. Still the meekest, the loveliest, the I know you're casting your crowns, my friends, at my feet, but I'm going to serve you anyway. Jesus is just too wonderful. The Son of God incarnate is just too wonderful for us to take in. But there is one thing that knowing him means. Death to pride, death to me, to me living for me, to being concerned primarily about me. Because he is going to serve his servants. What kind of servant is this? Savior is this? Do you know him? Are you alive in him? You know, we look at the landscape of the church today and we think, why are there so many problems? We've got this problem here and that problem there. I think a lot of them come down to, and subsequent historians who write of this age may indeed make this the issue, that there were a lot of people in the church, but not many of them truly knew the Savior. The supernatural new birth is not preached today as it should. You must be born again and you can't do it. It's not preached today. Why? Because as some think, what good is it to tell men to do something they can't do? We need to hear a message that is within our reach. Religion for dummies. Jesus for dummies. Jesus within our control. That is not what Jesus did. And notice that he's talking to Jews that grew up in the covenant. And he looked at Nicodemus. And he said, you're circumcised. And you are a ruler of my people. But you must be born again. You must be born from on high, Nicodemus. That's why you can't see me. That is why you can't devote yourself to me. Because you don't know me. You must Be born again. So if you're here today and you're saying, I hear what you're saying, Gary, about love. But my family, my wife, my children, my job, it's just too overwhelming for me. If you can't see Jesus and at the same level desire him, pray, Lord, just change me. Help me. Make me like you. Thank you for displeasing yourself to save me. If that is not there in you today, I feel duty-bound to warn you, you must be born again. Because you can't see these things unless God gives you new eyes to see them. I mean, you can have some affinity for me or Ben and say, well, I'm really going to try it again. That is not what Jesus said. He didn't tell Nicodemus, who was a Jew, a covenant child, you just need to keep trying, Nicodemus. He said, Nicodemus, you must be born again. You must have God take away your rebellious, stubborn, self-seeking heart and replace it with a heart of flesh and for him to write his law upon it. So here's the great thing. Even though we can't cause ourselves to be born from on high, 
We know that there is a God who has sent his son and that he called Lazarus out of the tomb and said, Lazarus, come forth. And he'll do the same thing for you. And his word is going out to you now today. So will you hear it? Will you listen? Will you repent? Will you call upon the name of the Lord? For whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. No doubt about it. And that is the first step before we can ever love one another or live like Jesus and truly learn to displease ourselves. We must be born again. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your gospel promises, for the example of your Son. We confess that we are filthy and weak, and we can't do anything to cleanse or make ourselves strong. But you can, for you are our God of old, working salvation in the midst of the work, earth. Please work it here. You are a king demanding deliverance for your people. Demand it here. Deliver here. Deliver us from our selfishness and pride, our blindness. Deliver us from our hardness of heart. Deliver us from the infection we have received from this self-dominated, self-seeking culture. Deliver us, Lord Jesus, to you. And be our Lord, and our Savior, and our example, and our joy. And teach us, by your Spirit, to deny ourselves and take up the cross, and follow you. We ask these things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and for his glory. Amen.